Conviction is brought to you by Three Rings Circus Productions. For links to our valued sponsors and all the show notes from this podcast, please visit our website, threeringscircus.com.au. In the last episode, Craig had been enlisted into an elite covert team, codenamed Project Gymea. He was also on another team, Team Jessica, as he and his wife Lisa supported their eldest daughter with her battle with a rare cancer, Ewing sarcoma. We begin episode four as Craig explains the early days of the Kalachi job. So now we'd had the team all ready and organised, we'd met each other and uh, starting off a new job is always different. And like no other job, we, we wanted to spend time on Les Kalachi and find out all these little mannerisms and what he did. Um, we knew he lived in a unit by himself in Clavelli. It was just a matter of, first of all, observing him. And this wasn't going to be a short job. We always knew that uh, from the start there was no time limit. We actually wanted to wrap up if the information was correct that we got. We knew that this is a large drug network and uh, if we could go for a period of time and, and rope in a number of these large suppliers, well, it was a benefit. Again, my expertise were always out on the road. I was never really an office person and I love getting out there and amongst it all. And the first weeks around uh, Clavelli and Ramwick and uh, Coogee. That was our main area. We sort of followed him in the mornings. He had a, a ritual where he'd go down to Giles Gym at Clavelli Beach. He'd have a workout. And then he'd meet up with another interesting individual. And this was a, a weekly thing, Monday to Friday. Name was Keith Bonney. He was uh, probably about well, mid to late 50s. He was a... Average height, I'd, I'd say, but quite a solid build. And uh, he would come down. He looked like a real lazy person. But if you go into Keith Bonney's history, he was probably known as one of the hardest men ever. Nettie Smith, who everyone knew from those periods of time back in the 70s, 80s, was uh, the notorious for knocking people off and in the drug world. Arthur Stanley Nettie Smith was an Australian criminal who was convicted of drug trafficking, theft, rape, armed robbery and murder. Smith spent much of his life in prison and claimed to have beaten up former British and Commonwealth heavyweight champion Bunny Johnson. He describes uh, Keith Bonney in his book as the hardest man he'd ever met and talks about Bonney copping a beating by the uh, Grafton prison guards up there in Grafton jail and just getting up every time and laughing at them. And no matter how hard they hit him, he'd just get back up and laugh. Keith Bonney was sort of Les's right-hand man. Uh, as we found out, they'd get, meet after Joel's gym and they'd have a juice and things down in some cafe, a cup of coffee. Then they'd go back to Kalachi's place. And at this time, we had nothing. We didn't have any listening devices. We were in the process of getting a telephone intercept. So everything was just raw. We were just following what was going on, looking at who was coming in, who was going out. We started doing a, a dossier of the people who were visiting the unit or where Kalachi was going, etc. And that was a very, very much the first week. At the same time, you know, I was uh, in and out of hospital with Jessica. And fortunately for, for Lisa and I, the job was only five minutes away from the Sydney Children's Hospital, um, which worked out really well. 
Lisa would generally come in on a uh, a Tuesday. Her father would be there on a Monday. I'd I'd take over on a Monday night. She'd come in on a Tuesday. She was able to bring her paperwork in, and um, I'd then try and come back on a Tuesday night again if I was on day shifts. Uh, the only thing was that my job was in that position where I was quiet and reliable if something urgent happened, although I always had the option to family was first. And that was sort of uh, installed by the, the boss of the unit. He said, no matter what happens, your family comes first, which was always great to know. So having hospital life and work pretty close, it, it was quite good in a way. Um, not that you want to be in hospital, but that's how it came. Life in hospital was now the new normal for the Guze family. In his police life, things were starting to get interesting. Back at the Kalachi house, Craig was able to make a breakthrough. We finally got our listening device and telephone intercept warrants through, which allowed us to get in. And again, getting into a tight unit block was difficult. You know, Les Kalachi is a character. And when I talk about a character, he's your everyday man, very loud. Uh, knew everyone around. He was a very generous man too and he was kind to his neighbours who liked him. Whether they knew what he was doing or not, I don't know. Um, so when you've got a, a close-knit community in a small block of units, uh, it's very hard to actually basically break in and, and put the listening devices in where we want them. Again, I, I won't go into how we do these things, but we managed to get in. We, we got a listening device into his unit. Uh, and this was going to be very interesting because for so many years I'm sure he thought he would have been safe um, and he would be speaking, we, we hoped, openly in the unit. And the telephone intercept came a little bit later. We were going to be the first ones in Australia to be able to have an intercept on a digital phone. And at this time, everyone had analogue phones and all the police and all the uh, enforcement agencies in Australia only had the capability of doing a telephone intercept on an analogue phone. Of course, the digitals had just come out and it was well known with the crooks that the police still didn't have the infrastructure or the technology to be able to uh, intercept these phone calls. So they spoke openly on the digital phones. And we were told at this briefing that we would be the first ones in Australia to have that technology available. And of course, no one else knew about it. And if some of these organised crime syndicates were linked with police, the police would still tell them that they could speak openly and freely until the date, obviously, that the other enforcement agencies found that they could use them and they'd be probably warned. So we had something up our sleeve and, and this was going to be great fun. This was the turn of the century. No one communicated via text, email or social media and most surveillance techniques involved enormous amounts of physical effort. This was truly old school. I remember the first day we put the listening device in, we uh, weren't able to get it right back to our office. Uh, in normal police circumstances, you would have a listening device go back to monitors in a separate building, and then you'd either have to go and see them in the office of where they were, or they would ring you if something was happening on that job. We were fortunate enough, because we were more or less secretive, we had our own listening device stations and monitors right next to our desks. So in our office, we had a run of desks, Behind that we had all our monitors with all the electronic um, equipment and if something was happening we could actually listen live if we were in the office. If not they would actually get us on the phone and tell us what was happening. The very first day we got it in I was actually working the street um, and typically like you see in movies and everything we had a, a big old work truck which had equipment inside 
and we used this as a, uh, a post or a listening post that was just near the premises. We could only be so far away until we got it wired back to the commission. And I can remember sitting in there the very first time and as Les Kalachi opened his mouth the first time we, we switched it on, cocaine was there, rife. Whoever he was with, I forget the guy's name, but they were talking about ounces of cocaine and how much he wanted and everything else. So I, I rang back to the office where everyone else was and uh, told them that we're on to gold, that things were going to happen, that this is the conversation straight off. Um, so, yeah, things were pretty exciting that uh, everything was going to go that way. The new technology that Project Gaimia bet on, the technology that had never been used before, started to pay dividends. The challenge now was to decipher the drug dealer's jargon and code words. When the digital phone, the telephone intercepts came through, it was all exactly the same and, and what we expected. The communication between him and others on drug talk was open, open to a point. Uh, they get so used to talking in, in a language that uh, drug dealers may call a monkey a $100 note or a $50 note or an ounce a certain thing or a type of drug a certain thing. Um, it was quite well known and when it goes to court, we can either prove it by making an arrest if someone does a takeaway, which I'll explain later, or we get a drug expert in who deals with these telephone intercepts and listening devices and they give their opinion, their expert opinion on what they were talking about. So from the very gecko on this job, we knew straight away that we were going to be onto a good thing. While these drug dealers conducted business, it's easy to forget they too had kids, girlfriends, wives. The drug dealing was juxtaposed with regular family activities. Kalachi had people coming in and out all day. He was more or less a business operator Monday to Friday. He never did drugs on the weekend. He may have thought about what he was doing and, and what he was going to do next, but there was never any dealings on the weekend. He did have a family. He was separated from his wife and he had a young, I think, five-year-old, and from memory his name was EJ. Totally adored the kid. Um, would pick him up from kindy and spend time with him, and on weekends he'd, he'd try and have the time with him as well. And I'm guessing that's why he had his Monday to Friday drug job and uh, weekends he tried to keep two, his, his young child. He only had the one and I can't remember where the ex-wife lived or what she did because she never came as part of the operation. It's sort of related in a way, you know, I could see Les, he, he was, uh, as I said, a character and he had um, kids similar age to me and I could see what he was doing with his kids. It was just a normal dad thing where he'd look after them and uh, want to be with them etc and as I said at the same time here I was you know investigating him organized crime and drugs and my time off I, I wanted to be with my kids as well. Craig spent so many hours watching and observing his suspects he always noticed many admirable human qualities in his targets as well as their illegal criminal activities. Arguably no one is all bad or all good for that matter. However, this never clouded his judgment. It was just the reality of life for Craig, particularly as he dealt with his daughter's battle with cancer. Um, Jessica had pretty much settled into life at the hospital. As I said, we were in and out all the time. You virtually with this drug, chemotherapy, you know, it gets pumped in there and it's a toxic poison. That's all it really is. And it doesn't know which bad cells to kill in the body. It, it more or less takes the body to a point where... I suppose three steps backwards and you try and get four steps forward if you can, but depending on 
on the dosage and everything else. We also had to put what was called a portacath into Jess when she first went into hospital. This was another operation that happened, apart from the biopsy. She had this small disc placed in her chest with an insertion into the neck. And rather than her, every time she goes into hospital to have um, an IV and chemo pumped through her, this portacath would act as a piece of um, false skin over the chest where we could actually puncture the needle into. So when she went in on a normal day at 8 o'clock on a Monday to start, she would go and have her portacath access through her chest um, and that would be in there for the whole week and it just saved putting needles in and out all the time. The nurses were dressed like something out of a neuro or atomic nuclear ward this chemo is really, really toxic, um, so they have to be suited up, masks, gloves, etc. And, you know, this is being pumped into the kids raw. It was a whole new experience for Lisa and I, and, you know, we had to spend some time with the doctors and nurses learning about it because you become part of the process as well. She also had to have uh, this thing called GCCF shots, which was um, a needle, and we did that as well. It came through usually in the thigh, the leg, and that was to try and beef her immune system back up and try and get her back up. And this was usually done after a treatment back at home. You know, the hospital was just a daily process. You know, she started off with all the hair and, 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 you know, quite good, feeling quite good. But as the weeks went on that we were in there, you could see that things were changing. She lost her hair. She didn't care. Uh, which is, you know, true to being a kid. They don't seem to worry about these things. Um, but, yeah, you could see a, a degeneration in her in her body. Uh, she wasn't as as well-built, I suppose, what you might say, as what she was. She'd, her, losing her appetite is one of the things, too, with having the chemo, and you could see it deteriorating on her body and everything else. Um, you know, the hospital's not a great place to be, and no one wants to be there. In moments of stress and the normal parent concerns, parents hide the worries from their kids. Craig decided to make sure they had moments of fun in a place that was not designed for joy. And I could actually see that, you know, sometimes you need to lift the spirit. It would generally be in a ward where there was four, three other kids. It was catered for four groups. Usually there's one parent and one child in there sharing this, this ward. Um... On this particular day, I could see all the kids in the ward were down. I thought, I'll bugger this, I'll try and cheer them up. I said to Jess, I'm going to go down the street and get some some food and I'll come back. So I made sure when I went out to get some food, I whatever takeaway food I got, I wanted brown paper bags. I came back in and uh, gave her, she used to love spring rolls, believe it or not, and she had taste for different things all the time. So I got spring rolls and a brown paper bag. Gave her the spring rolls. I said, I'll be back in a minute, Jess. We're going to do something quite fun. Um, and I just disappeared. I, I went out to the little kitchenette we had and I filled up a pot with hot water and I came back to her and she said, what are we doing? I said, we're doing some paper mache, Jess. She said, what are we making? I said, we're going to make a big poo. She said, what? I said, we're going to make a big poo. And she just started chuckling away and I could see the other kids looking over. So I got this brown, or a couple of these brown paper bags and put them in hot water and made them into a brown paste. I then neatly moulded them so they looked like a great big poo. I went and got some peanut butter out of the kitchen cupboard and just filled in the little bits like a, a true artist. And meanwhile, Jess has started laughing, saying, what are you going to do with this now, Dad? I said, you watch. So I got a bedpan and I got a little bit of toilet paper and I put it in the bottom of the bedpan with the toilet paper around it. 
And I said, you wait, I'm going to call one of the nurses up. And she started chuckling. And I said, don't smile or don't give it away. And I looked around the room at the other kids giving them a wink. And I pushed the button for the nurse. And sure enough, a couple of seconds later, the nurse comes in. She said, what's the matter, Craig? I said, oh, look, Jessica's uh, gone to the toilet. And uh, she said, okay, well, give it to me. So I lifted the pan up and moved towards her. And I put my hand in the pan and grabbed the big poo. And you should have seen the look on the nurse's face. Not only the nurse's face, the kids were laughing already. And I hand it to her and she said, oh, what's going on? And, uh, yeah, just the look on their face. That wasn't the end of it. Once I picked it up out of the pan, I said, look, it's fine. And I gave it a big lick. And you should have seen her face. She just about vomited. But all the other kids were just laughing their heads off, which is a great thing. You know, it was one of those little jokes, one of those little moments that you, you have fun with the nurse. She just about hit me over the head with a bedpan. But uh, you can see the, the look on the kid's face. It just broke the silence and uh, all the kids had a, you know, a better day from what they were having. Back at Project Gymere HQ, the listening devices were about to deliver an unexpected win for the team. Meanwhile, back with Kalachi, you know, he started to um, talk more and more and more. And I think the first week that we had the listening device in, we had a character turn up and we didn't know who it was. And he was in a hire car, so we actually couldn't check via the rego who this particular person was. And he was in there and bragging about everything. He was one of these big noters and you could see the way Kalachi was sort of responding that this guy loved to brag. But one particular thing he was talking about, he was wanting to set up with Kalachi uh, a cannabis network and he said that he had uh, set up two large properties in Queensland on the border of New South Wales with heaps of uh, modern glass houses, the big plastic ones, about 50 metres long, and that he was growing huge amounts of cannabis and had drying rooms and had a whole press process going and he'd obviously come down to Sydney to line up blokes that he knew that could distribute large amounts of, of cannabis. The guys from the DEA actually picked his voice and uh, all of a sudden they said that's such and such. I, to this day I can't remember his name but they said oh that's such and such. He's actually wanted, he, he failed to appear at a sentencing. He was meant to be sentenced about three or four years ago and one of the boys actually had worked on the job. So they knew his voice from other telephone intercepts and listening devices that would run years ago. He was um, a bad dude, yeah. He carried a gun. He was known to carry a gun. He'd been missing for three years. He'd been on the run. He'd obviously gone up to Queensland and hung in these remote locations growing cannabis crops. So this was great. We, we thought, we can't let this go. I was out in the field at the time, and uh, they rang us and filled us in and said, look, no matter what, you've got to follow this car, the hire car, wherever it's going, and uh, we want to put him to bed and we'll organise something for the next morning. So sure enough, we followed him from Kalachi's unit. He went to a little place in Chippendale, which is in the inner city of Sydney, and we found out uh, that he was living with a lady there for a short period of time while he was down. It was an ex-girlfriend. And he'd got back with her just for the time being. And that's where he put his head down. It looked like he was going to stay there. And we ended up staying there until it got dark and his car was parked there. So we managed to organise a raid, not by us, by other police. So we gave information to another squad. They didn't know where the information came from but knew it was valid. And uh, with them and the SWAT team, they did a dawn raid and smashed the door down, went in knowing that he's possibly armed and arrested him and from memory he had a, a pistol and he was arrested there on the warrant 
originally uh, for failing to appear at a sentencing where he's going to spend time in jail. And we also had the other police go through the car and they gave us all the information that was found in the car, which was all these false IDs and information. And from that, we actually were able to find through his false ID and he'd been buying irrigation equipment, etc. We managed to track down the two properties. We had the Queensland police go to one and we had uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency from New South Wales go to the other. I went up with one of our colleagues just to oversee everything. We didn't actually get involved. We just made sure that uh, the properties were there and photographed from the street. So we were sort of a, a bit of a secretive. We collected a bit of information on the side from some of these irrigation places. Uh, but everything was in place, what he talked about. No one was arrested over it because we couldn't actually prove it. It was leased. The properties were leased in uh, different names that were all false. Uh, but at the end of the day, we stopped the you know the production of further drugs there with these cannabis plantations and uh, we put someone in jail that was meant to be in jail originally and uh, Kalachi thought nothing more he heard down the grapevine what had happened and just uh, bad luck that was it never thought that it came from his place which was good and that's the way we wanted it as Craig mentioned earlier the terminology and words these criminals used were unique to drug dealing and it was up to the police to legally prove that seemingly normal vague words were in fact very specific instructions on deals. Craig had to use some unusual tactics to get the information he needed, and sometimes that put him face-to-face with the people he was hiding from. We were able to do a couple of takeaways as well, and I spoke earlier about the takeaways. We generally try and prove that if someone walks in and says, yeah, mate, I'll have uh, two of the two of the oaky. So we actually wanted to prove what two of the oaky was. I can remember uh, one particular one where the guy rang up and, and said, oh, you know, I want two of the oaky. And uh, Les said, I'll have to bring it down to you. And we thought, I wonder why this is. He usually had them always come up to the car. Um, I had my old reliable ute, twin cab ute, so I said, I'll get in the street and I'll try and get some good visuals and some photos. So I actually parked right at the front of Les's place and just put my little high-vis vest on. I got a spray can out of the, it was like a um, commercial spray gun with a pack. And I sat right out the front of his place and uh, filled it with water and was spraying the actual telegraph poles, the base of the telegraph poles, which they sometimes do. They, they put a, um, a spray on poles if they're timber to keep the termites out. Um, knowing that you know, this guy had rung and said, look, I'll be there in two minutes, I had a a knowledge that he was coming and sure enough Les come out and had a good look came real close to me probably within about three or four meters I just continued what I was doing and went back to the car pointed the camera where I needed to get it guy pulled up in a van and I stayed in the car Les sort of got over to the passenger seat with a little bundle and uh, passed it through and within I don't know one minute the guy was gone and Les sort of came up to me and I just said g'day mate he uh, said g'day and just walked past and went back into the unit He thought nothing more, didn't ask what I was doing. He could see that I was doing other stuff. We had it followed, the car followed probably for about 30 kilometres. They went right over the other side of Sydney. We noticed that uh, when he first pulled up, the tail light was out, so that was our good excuse to get the car pulled over. So we had a highway patrol pull him over and we, we said, you need to do a search on this car. The guy did have a drug history once we checked it and sure enough, highway patrol did it and, uh, 
found two ounces of coke. So our, our two of oaky we now know was the code, oaky being coke and two was ounces. So that become your formula when you're talking about, you know, five of oaky or whatever. We knew it was going to be five ounces of, of coke. And we did a number of these and we did them in a, in a matter of fact that it would be unknown to Kalachi that it actually stemmed from his place. And this happened on a number of occasions when they mentioned different drugs, so in a later stage we could actually prove it. Back in the hospital, Craig had an epiphany that would challenge him like he had never been challenged before. In the, you know, in the hospital again, I was in there that much and seeing what they needed. You know, we're going back in a period of time where they're not like the modern hospitals and they don't have the same facilities back in those days and it really lacked things. I think we had probably maybe 40 kids in the hospital at one time. And from memory, we only had two televisions and they used to have to share it and there was a, a lot of other things lacking, even equipment. I can remember when kids had to have bone marrow transplants, they had to be taken to different hospitals by ambulance and it's uncomfortable enough in the situation they're in, let alone to be taken out of their comfort zone and other hospitals for the day, etc. I just couldn't believe that at this stage we, you know, were going through this and I asked the doctors, you know, what's the go with with funding and things like that? And they said, we know, we're pretty limited and we don't get a lot and we just use what we can. And for some reason I thought, you know what, I'm going to, rather than be negative and sit here and talk about why my child got cancer, I'll take a different stance and, and think, well, shit, this dead time that I've got sitting here in hospital, uh, let's make it positive and let's do something. So I decided to try and raise money. I'd been in surf clubs all my life and used to row surf boats, which can you know consisted of having another three rowers and a sweep. And we used to row at Queensland in the national titles around March every year. I'd been held up there for a number of years. I knew I wouldn't be able to train in the surf boat. I couldn't row in the surf boat anymore due to what, what had happened. Uh, so I knew I couldn't get a surf boat to, to raise money, but for some unknown reason I decided to learn how to paddle a surf ski, an ocean ski, which is about 17 foot long. It's like a kayak, but you sit in the open part of the ocean, you're not inside it. And I thought, I'll paddle it from Sydney to Queensland, I'll end up at the Australian Surf Life Saving Titles, and uh, I'll try and raise as much money and awareness as I can. And that's, that's what I thought. I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. I thought I'll call it A to B for C. I live in Avalon in Sydney, so I'll start at my home beach, Avalon. I'll finish where the surf life-saving titles are in Broadbeach, being the B. And the C is for cancer, so Avalon to Broadbeach for cancer. What a genius name, I thought. Probably a poor decision, though, <laughs> as I've never paddled a ski before. I also had to get over the fact that I was working on organised crime and I had a sick child in hospital but I suppose you know people say why did you do it and isn't it a selfish act of what you did or what you're going to do and I took the opposite I thought well no it's not I'm, I'm a father I'm a protector of my family I, I've got to try and look after them as much as I can even though the money that I was going to raise wasn't directly going to go to my daughter it was going to go to years down the track to, to sick kids I felt totally helpless I had this bit emotional sick uh, child there in bed and unable to do anything but uh, sit there with her so yeah that's that's what it come out to be and uh, I devoted all my time in hospital 
that I was doing nothing else to start to formulate a plan of A to B for C. Paddle a surf ski 1,000 kilometres in the open ocean, which had never been done before. Craig wasn't the type of person to sit still. Determined to contribute to the fight against cancer, he started his own charity. In the infancy of this venture, he didn't realise this would take him into the wilderness of the Australian outback, the open seas of Australia's east coast, and all the way to the steps of Parliament House. Oh, and face to face with the occasional shark. More on this in our next episode of Conviction. Conviction.